Section one of the Art of Fiction. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Julie van Mariam. The Art of Fiction by Walter Besant and Henry James. Section one. Walter Besant's Lecture, Part one. The Art of Fiction, a lecture delivered at the Royal Institution. April twenty fifth, eighteen eighty four. I desire this evening to consider fiction as one of the fine arts. In order to do this, and before doing it, I have first to advance certain propositions. They are not new, they are not likely to be disputed, and yet they have never been so generally received as to form part, so to speak, of the national mind. These propositions are three those last two directly spring from the first they are one that fiction is an art in every way worthy to be called the sister and the equal of the art of painting sculpture music and poetry that is to say her field is as boundless her possibilities as vast her excellences as worthy of admiration as may be claimed for any of her sister arts two that it is an art which, like them, is governed and directed by general laws, and that these laws may be laid down and taught, with as much precision and exactness as the laws of harmony, perspective, and proportion. 3. That, like the other fine arts, fiction is so far removed from the mere mechanical arts, that no laws or rules whatever can teach it to those who have not already been endowed with natural and necessary gifts. These are the three propositions which I have to discuss. It follows as a corollary and evident deduction that, these propositions once admitted, those who will follow and profess the art of fiction must be recognized as artists, in the strictest sense of the word, just as much as those who have delighted and elevated mankind by music and painting, and that the great masters of fiction must be placed on the same level as the great masters in the other arts. In other words, I mean that where the highest point, or what seems the highest point possible in this art is touched, the man who has reached it is one of the world's greatest men. I cannot suppose that there are any in this room who would refuse to admit these propositions. On the contrary, they will seem to most here self-evident, yet the application of theory to practice of principle to persons, may be more difficult. For instance, so boundless is the admiration for great masters, such as Raphael or Mozart, that if one were to propose that Thackeray should be placed beside them, on the same level and as an equal, there would be felt by most a certain shock. I am not suggesting that the art of Thackeray is to be compared with that of Raphael, or that there is any similarity in the work of the two men. I only say that, fiction being one art, and painting another and a sister art, those who attain the highest possible distinction in either are equal. Let us, however, go outside this room, among the multitudes, by whom a novelist has never been considered an artist at all. To them the claim that a great novelist should be considered to occupy the same level as a great musician, a great painter, or a great poet, would appear at first a thing ludicrous and even painful. 
Consider for a moment how the world at large regards the novelist. He is, in their eyes, a person who tells stories, just as they used to regard the actor as a man who tumbled on the stage to make the audience laugh, and the musician as a man who fiddled to make the people dance. This is the old way of thinking, and most people think first, as they have been taught to think, and next, as they see others think. It is, therefore, quite easy to understand why the art of novel-writing has always been, by the general mass, undervalued. First, while the leaders in every other branch of art, in every department of science, and in every kind of profession, receive their share of the ordinary national distinctions. No one ever hears of honours being bestowed upon novelists. Neither Thackeray nor Dickens was ever, so far as I know, offered a peerage. Neither king, queen, or prince in any country throughout the whole world takes the least notice of them. I do not say they would be any the better for this kind of recognition, but its absence clearly proves, to those who take their opinions from others, that they are not a class at all worthy of special honour. Then again, in the modern craze, which exists for every kind of art, so that we meet everywhere, in every household, amateur actors, painters, etchers, sculptors, modellers, musicians, and singers, all of them serious and earnest in their aims, amateur novelists alone regard their art as one which is learned by intuition. Thirdly, novelists are not associated as our painters. They hold no annual exhibitions, dinners, or conversazioni. They put no letters after their name. They have no president or academy, and they do not themselves seem desirous of being treated as followers of a special art. I do not say that they are wrong, or that much would be gained for art if all the novelists of England were invited to court and created into a royal academy. But I do say that for these three reasons it is easy to understand how the world at large does not even suspect that the writing of novels is one of the fine arts, and why they regard the storyteller with a sort of contempt. It is, I acknowledge, a kindly contempt, even an affectionate contempt. It is the contempt which the practical man feels for the dreamer, the strong man for the weak, the man who can do for the man who can only look on and talk. The general, the Philistine view of the profession is, first of all, that it is not one which a scholar and a man of serious views should take up. The telling of stories is inconsistent with a well-balanced mind. To be a teller of stories disqualifies one from a hearing on important subjects. At this very day there are thousands of living people who will never understand how the author of Coningsby and Vivian Grey can possibly be regarded as a serious statesman. All the Disraeli literature, even to the comic cartoons, express the popular sentiment that a novelist must not presume to call himself a statesman. The intellect of a novelist, it is felt, if he have any intellect at all, which is doubtful, must be one of the most frivolous and lightest kind. How can a man whose mind is always full of the loves of Corydon and Amaryllis be trusted to form an opinion on practical matters? When Thackeray ventured to contest the city of Oxford, we know what happened. He thought his failure was because the people of Oxford had never even heard of him. I think otherwise. 
I think it was because it was whispered from house to house, and was carried from shop to shop, and was mentioned in the vestry, that this fellow from London, who asked for their votes, was nothing but a common novelist. With these people must not be confounded another class, not so large, who are prepared to admit that fiction is in some qualified sense an art, but they do this as a concession to the vanity of its followers, and are by no means prepared to allow that it is an art of the first rank. How can that be an art, they might ask, which has no lecturers or teachers, no school or college or academy, no recognized rules, no textbooks, and is not taught in any university? Even the German universities, which teach everything else, do not have professors of fiction, and not one single novelist, so far as I know, has ever pretended to teach his mystery, or spoken of it as a thing which may be taught. Clearly, therefore, they would go on to argue, such art as is required for the making and telling of a story, can and must be mastered without study, because no materials exist for the student's use. It may even, perhaps, be acquired unconsciously, or by imitation. This view, I am sorry to say, largely prevails among the majority of those who try their chance in the field of fiction. Anyone they think can write a novel. Therefore, why not sit down and write one? I would not willingly say one word which might discourage those who are attracted to this branch of literature. On the contrary, one desires, however, that they should approach their work at the outset with the same serious and earnest appreciation of its importance and its difficulties with which they undertake the study of music and painting. I would wish, in short, that from the very beginning their minds should be fully possessed with the knowledge that fiction is an art, and like all other arts, that it is governed by certain laws, methods, and rules which it is their first business to learn. It is, then, first and before all, a real art. It is the oldest, because it was known and practised, long before painting and her sisters were in existence or even thought of. It is older than any of the muses from whose company she who tells stories has hitherto been excluded. It is the most widely spread, because in no race of men under the sun is it unknown, even though the stories may be always the same, and handed down from generation to generation in the same form. It is the most religious of all the arts, because in every age, until the present, the lives, exploits, and sufferings of gods, goddesses, saints, and heroes have been the favourite theme. It has always been the most popular, because it requires neither culture, education, or natural genius to understand and listen to a story. It is the most moral, because the world has always been taught whatever little morality it possesses, by way of story, fable, apologue, parable, and allegory. It commands the widest influence, because it can be carried easily and everywhere, into regions where pictures are never seen and music is never heard. It is the greatest teaching power, because its lessons are most readily apprehended and understood. All this, which might have been said thousands of years ago, may be said to-day with even greater force and truth. That world, which exists not, but is an invention or an imitation, 
that world in which the shadows and shapes of men move about before our eyes, as real as if they were actually living and speaking among us, is like a great theatre accessible to all of every sort on whose stage are enacted, at our own sweet will, whenever we please to command them, the most beautiful plays. It is as every theatre should be, the school in which manners are learned. Here the majority of reading mankind learn nearly all that they know of life and manners, of philosophy and art, even of science and religion. The modern novel converts abstract ideas into living models. It gives ideas. It strengthens faith. It preaches a higher morality than is seen in the actual world. It commands the emotions of pity, admiration, and terror. It creates and keeps alive the sense of sympathy. It is a universal teacher. It is the only book which the great mass of reading mankind ever do read. It is the only way in which people can learn what other men and women are like. It redeems their lives from dullness, puts thoughts, desires, knowledge, and even ambition into their hearts. It teaches them to talk and enriches their speech with epigrams, anecdotes, and illustrations. It is an unfailing source of delight to millions, happily not too critical. Why, out of all the books taken down from the shelves of the public libraries, four-fifths are novels, out of all those that are bought, nine-tenths are novels. Compared with this tremendous engine of popular influence, what are all the other arts put together? Can we not alter the old magazine and say with truth, let him who pleases make the laws, if I may write the novels? As for the field with which this art of fiction occupies itself, it is, if you please, nothing less than the whole of humanity. The novelist studies men and women. He is concerned with their actions and their thoughts, their errors and their follies, their greatness and their meanness, the countless forms of beauty and constantly varying moods to be seen amongst them, the forces which act upon them, the passions, prejudices, hopes and fears which pull them this way and that. He has to do, above all, and before all, with men and women. No one, for instance, among novelists, can be called a landscape painter, or a painter of sea-pieces, or a painter of fruit and flowers, save only in strict subordination to the group of characters with whom he is dealing. Landscape, sea, sky, and air are merely accessories introduced in order to set off and bring into greater prominence the figures on the stage. The very first rule in fiction is that the human interest must absolutely absorb everything else. Some writers never permit anything at all in their pages which shall divert our thoughts one moment from the actors. When, for instance, Charles Reed, alas, that we must say the late Charles Reed, for he is dead, when this great master of fiction, in his incomparable tale of the cloister and the hearth, sends Garrett and Dennis de Burgundian on that journey through France, it is with the fewest possible of words that he suggests the sights and persons met with on the way. Yet so great is the art of the writer that, almost without being told, we see the road, a mere rough track, winding beside the river and along the valleys. We see the silent forests, 
where lurked the routiers and the robbers, the cut-throat in, the merchants, peasants, beggars, soldiers who go riding by. The writer does not pause in his story to tell us of all this, but yet we feel it. By the mere action of the piece and the dialogue, we are compelled to see the scenery. The life of the fifteenth century passes before us, with hardly a word to picture it, because it is always kept in the background, so as not to interfere with the central figure of the young clerk journeying to Rome. The human interest in fiction, then, must come before all else. It is of this world, wholly of this world. It might seem at first, as if the limitation of this art to things human placed it on a lower level than the arts of painting and music. That, however, is not so. The stupendous subjects which were undertaken by the old Italian painters are, it is true, beyond the power of fiction to attempt. It may be questioned whether they are not also, according to modern ideas, beyond the legitimate scope of painting. Certainly, just as there is nothing in the whole of creation more worthy of being studied and painted than the human face and form, so there is nothing more worthy of representation than men and women in action and in passion. The ancient poet placed the gods of themselves upon the stage with the furies and the fates. Then we had the saints, confessors, and martyrs. We next descended to kings and great lords. In our times, painter, poet, and novelist alike are contented with plain humanity, whether crowned or in rags. What picture, let us ask, what picture ever painted of angels and blessed souls, even if they are mounting the hill on which stands the four-square city of the Jasper Wall, is able to command our interest and sympathy more profoundly than the simple and faithful story truly and faithfully told of a lover and his mistress? Is it, therefore, the especial characteristic of this art that, since it deals exclusively with men and women, it not only requires of its followers, but also creates in readers that sentiment which is destined to be a most mighty engine in deepening and widening the civilization of the world. We call it sympathy, but it means a great deal more than what was formerly understood by the word. It means, in fact, what Professor Seeley once called the enthusiasm of humanity, and it first appeared, I think, about a hundred and fifty years ago, when the modern novel came into existence. You will find it, for instance, conspicuous for its absence in Defoe. The modern sympathy includes not only the power to pity the sufferings of others, but also that of understanding their various souls. It is the reverence for man, the respect for his personality, the recognition of his individuality, and the enormous value of the one man the perception of one man's relation to another, his duties and responsibilities. Through the strength of this newly-born faculty, and aided by the guidance of a great artist, we are enabled to discern the real indestructible man beneath the rags and filth of a common castaway, and the possibilities of the meanest gutter-child that steals in the streets for its daily bread. Surely that is a wonderful art, which endows the people, all of the people, with this power of vision and of feeling. Painting has not done it, and could never do it. Painting has done more for nature than for humanity. Sculpture could not do it, because it deals with situation and form rather than action. Music cannot do it, 
because music, if I understand rightly, appeals especially to the individual concerning himself and his own aspirations. Poetry alone is a rival of fiction, and in this respect it takes a lower place not because poetry fails to teach and interpret, but because fiction is, and must always be, more popular. Again this art teaches, like the others, by suppression and retinence. Out of the great procession of humanity, the comédie humaine which the novelist sees passing ever before his eyes, single figures detach themselves one after the other, to be questioned, examined, and received or rejected. This process goes on perpetually. Humanity is so vast a field, that to one who goes about watching men and women, and does not sit at home and devolve figures out of inner consciousness, there is not, and can never be, any end or limit to the freshness and interest of these figures. It is the work of the artist to select the figures, to suppress, to copy, to group, and to work up the incident which each one offers. The daily life of the world is not dramatic. It is monotonous. The novelist makes it dramatic by his silences, his suppressions, and his exaggerations. No one, for example, in fiction, behaves quite in the same way as in real life. As on the stage, if an actor unfolds and reads a letter, the simple action is done with an exaggeration of gesture, which calls attention to the thing and to its importance. So, in romance, while nothing should be allowed which does not carry on the story, so everything as it occurs must be accentuated, and yet deprived of needless accessory details. The gestures of the characters at an important juncture, their looks, their voices, may all be noted if they help to impress the situation. Even the weather, the wind and the rain, with some writers, have been made to emphasize a mood or a passion of a heroine. To know how to use these aids artistically is to the novelist exactly what to the actor is the right presentation of a letter, the handing of a chair, even the removal of a glove. A third characteristic of fiction, which should alone be sufficient to give it a place among the noblest forms of art, is that like poetry, painting, and music, it becomes the vehicle, not only for the best thought of the writer, but also for those of the reader, so that a novelist may write truthfully and faithfully, but simply, and yet be understood, in a far fuller and nobler sense than was present to his own mind. This power is the very highest gift of the poet. He has a vision and sees a thing clearly, yet perhaps afar off. Another who reads him is enabled to get the same vision, to see the same thing, yet closer and more distinctly. For a lower intellect thus to lead and instruct a higher is surely a very great gift, and granted only to the highest forms of art. And this it is which fiction of the best kind does for its readers. It is, however, only another way of saying that truth in fiction produces effects similar to those produced by truth in every other art. So far, then, I have showed that this art of fiction is the most ancient of all arts and the most popular, that its field is a whole of humanity, that it creates and develops that sympathy which is a kind of second sight, that, like all other arts, 
its function is to select, to suppress, and to arrange, that it suggests as well as narrates. More might be said, a great deal more, but enough has been said to show that in these, the leading characteristics of any art, fiction is on exactly the same level as a sister's. Let me only add that in this art, as in the others, there is and will be always, whatever has been done already, something new to discover, something new to express, something new to describe. Surgeons dissect the body and account for every bone and every nerve, so that the body of one man, considered as a collection of bones and nerves, is so far exactly like the body of another man. But the mind of man cannot be so exhausted. It yields discoveries to every patient student. It is absolutely inexhaustible. It is to everyone a fresh and virgin field. And the most successful investigator leaves regions and tracks for his successor as vast as those he has himself gone over. Perhaps, after all, the greatest psychologist is not the metaphysician, but the novelist. We come next to speak of the laws which govern this art. I mean those general rules and principles which must necessarily be acquired by every writer of fiction before he can even hope for success. Rules will not make a man a novelist any more than a knowledge of grammar makes a man know a language, or a knowledge of musical science makes a man able to play an instrument. Yet the rules must be learned, and in speaking of them, one is compelled, so close is the connection between the sister arts, to use not only the same terms, but also to adopt the same rules as those laid down by painters for their students. If these laws appear self-evident, it is a proof that the general principles of the art are well understood. Considering, however, the vast quantity of bad, inartistic work which is every week laid before the public, one is inclined to think that a statement of these principles may not be without usefulness. First, and before everything else, there is the rule that everything in fiction which is invented, and is not the result of personal experience and observation, is worthless. In some other arts, the design may follow any lines which the designer pleases. It may be fanciful, unreal, or grotesque. But in modern fiction, whose sole end, aim, and purpose is to portray humanity and human character, the design must be, in accordance with the customs and general practice of living men and women, under any proposed set of circumstances and conditions. That is to say, the characters must be real, and such as might be met with in actual life, or at least, the natural development of such people as any of us might meet. Their actions must be natural and consistent. The conditions of place, of manners, and of thought must be drawn from personal observation. To take an extreme case, a young lady brought up in a quiet country village should avoid descriptions of garrison life, a writer whose friends and personal experiences belong to what we call the lower middle class, should carefully avoid introducing his characters into society. A South Country man would hesitate before attempting to reproduce the North Country accent. This is a very simple rule, but one to which there should be no exception, never to go beyond your own experience. 
Authors note, it has been objected to this rule that, if followed, it would entirely shut out the historical novel. Not at all. The interest of the historical novel, as of any other novel, depends upon the experience and knowledge which the writer has of humanity, men and women, being pretty much alike in all ages. It is not the setting that we regard, so much as the acting of the characters. The setting in a historical novel is very often absurd, incorrect, and incongruous. But the human interest, the skill and knowledge of character shown by the writer, may make us forget the errors of the setting. For instance, Romola is undoubtedly a great novel, not because it contains a true and therefore valuable reproduction of Florentine life in the time of the early Renaissance, for it does not, nor because it gives us the ideas of the age, for it does not. The characters, especially that of the heroine, being fully of nineteenth-century ideas, but it is great as a study of character. On the other hand, in the cloister and the hearth, we do really have a description of the time and its ideas, taking bodily, sometimes almost literally, from the pages of the man who most truly represents them, Erasmus. So that here is a rule for the historical novelist. When he must describe, he must borrow. If it be objected again, that he may do the same thing with contemporary life, I reply that he may, if he please, but he will be most assuredly be found out through some blunder, omission, or confusion caused by ignorance. No doubt, the same blunders are perpetrated by the historical novelist, but these are not so readily found out except by an archaeologist. Of course, one who desires to reproduce a time gone by would not go to the poets, the divines, the historians so much as to the familiar literature, the letters, comedies, tales, essayists, and newspapers. End of author's note. Remember that most of the people who read novels and know nothing about the art of writing them recognize before any other quality that of fidelity. The greatness of a novelist they measure chiefly by the knowledge of the world displayed in his pages. The highest praise they can bestow upon him is that he has drawn the story to the life. It is exactly the same with the picture. If you go to the academy any day and listen to the comments of the crowd, which is a very instructive thing to do, and one recommended to young novelists, you will presently become aware that the only thing they look for in a picture is the story which it tells, and therefore the fidelity with which it is presented on the canvas. Most of the other qualities of the picture, and of the novel as well, all that has to do with the technique, escape the general observer. This being so, the first thing which has to be acquired is the art of description. It seems easy to describe. Any one, it seems, can set down what he sees. But consider, how much does he see? There is everywhere, even in a room, such a quantity of things to be seen, far, far more in field and hedge, in mountain and in forest, and beside the stream are there countless things to be seen. The unpractised eye sees nothing, or next to nothing. Here is a tree, here is a flower, there is sunshine lying on the hill. But to the observant and trained eye, the intelligent eye, there lies before him everywhere 
an inexhaustible and bewildering mass of things to see. Remember how Mr. Jeffrey sits down in the coppice with his eyes wide open, to see what the rest of us never dreamt of looking for. Long before he has half finished telling us what he has seen, behold, a volume, and one of the most delightful volumes conceivable. But then Mr. Jeffreys is a profound naturalist. We cannot all describe after his manner, nor should we try, for the simple reason that descriptions of still life in a novel must be strictly subordinated to the human interest. But while Mr. Jeffreys has his hatch and ditch and brook, we have our towns, our villages, and our assemblies of men and women. Among them we must not only observe, but we must select. Here, then, are two distinct faculties which the intending novelist must acquire, viz. observation and selection. As for the power of observation, it may be taught to any one by the simple method adopted by Robert Houdin, the French conjurer. This method consists of noting down continually and remembering all kinds of things remarked in the course of a journey, a walk, or the day's business. The learner must carry his notebook always with him into the fields, to the theatre, into the streets, wherever he can watch man and his ways, or nature and her ways. On his return home, he should enter his notes in his commonplace book. There are places where the production of a notebook would be embarrassing say at a dinner-party, or a street-fight, yet the man who begins to observe will speedily be able to remember everything that he sees and hears, until he can find an opportunity to note it down so that nothing is lost. Author's Note I earnestly recommend those who desire to study this art to begin by daily practice in the description of things, even common things, that they have observed by reporting conversations and by word portraits of their friends, they will find that the practice gives them firmness of outline, quickness of observation, power of catching important details, and as regards dialogue, readiness to see what is unimportant. Preliminary practice and study of this kind will also lead to the saving of a vast quantity of valuable material which is only wasted by being prematurely worked up into a novel written before the elements of the art have been acquired. End of Author's Note The materials for the novelist, in short, are not in the books upon the shelves, but in the men and women he meets with everywhere. He will find them where Dickens found them, in the crowded streets, in trains, tram-cars, and omnibuses, at the shop-windows, in churches and chapels, his materials are everywhere. There is nothing too low, nothing too high, nothing too base, nothing too noble for the novelist. Humanity is like a kaleidoscope, which you may turn about and look into, but you will never get the same picture twice. It cannot be exhausted. But it may be objected that the broad distinctive types have been long since all used. They have been used, but the comfort is that they can never be used up, and that they may constantly used again and again. Can we ever be tired of them when a master hand takes one of them again and gives him new life? Are there to be no more hypocrites, because we have already had Tartuffe and Pecksniff? Do we suppose 
that the old miser, the young spendthrift, the gambler, the adventurer, the coquette, the drunkard, the soldier of fortune, are never to reappear because they have been handled already, as long, on the contrary, as man shall continue story-telling, so long will these characters occur again and again, and look as fresh each time that they are treated by a master's hand, as if they were newly discovered types. Fidelity, therefore, can be only assured by acquiring the art of observation, which further assists in filling the mind with stored experience. I am quite sure that most men never see anything at all. I have known men who have even gone all round the world and seen nothing, no nothing at all. Emerson says very truly that a traveller takes away nothing from a place except what he brought into it. Now the observation of things around us is no part of the ordinary professional and commercial life. It has nothing at all to do with success and the making of money, so that we do not learn to observe. Yet it is very easy to shake people and make them open their eyes. Some of us remember, for instance, the time when Kingsley astonished everybody with his descriptions of the wonders to be seen on the seashore, and to be fished out of every pond in the field. Then all the world began to poke about the seaweed and to catch tritons and keep water-grubs in tanks. It was only a fashion, and it presently died out. But it did people good, because it made them understand, perhaps for the first time, that there really is a good deal more to see than meets the casual eye. At present, the lesson which we need is not that the world is full of the most strange and wonderful creatures, all eating each other perpetually, but that the world is full of the most wonderful men and women, not one of whom is mean or common, but to each his own personality is a great and awful thing, worthy of the most serious study. There are, then, abundant materials waiting to be picked up by any who has the wit to see them lying at his feet and all around him. What is next required is a power of selection. Can this be taught? I think not, at least I do not know how, unless it is by reading. In every art, selection requires that kind of special fitness for the art, which is included in the much-abused word genius. In fiction, the power of selection requires a large share of the dramatic sense. Those who already possess this faculty will not go wrong if they bear in mind the simple rule that nothing should be admitted which does not advance the story illustrate the characters, bring into stronger relief the hidden forces which act upon them, their emotions, their passions, and their intentions. All descriptions which hinder instead of helping the action, all episodes of whatever kind, all conversation which does not either advance the story or illustrate the characters, ought to be rigidly suppressed. Closely connected with selection is dramatic presentation. Given a situation, it should be the first care of the writer to present it as dramatically, that is to say, as forcibly as possible. The grouping and setting of the picture, the due subordination of description to dialogue, the rapidity of the action, 
those things which naturally suggest themselves to the practised eye, deserve to be very carefully considered by the beginner. In fact, a novel is like a play. It may be divided into scenes and acts, tableaus and situations, separated by the end of the chapter instead of the drop scene. The writer is a dramatist, stage manager, scene painter, actor, and carpenter all in one. It is his single business to see that none of the scenes flag or fall flat. He must never for one moment forget to consider how the piece is looking from the front. End of section one.